LA Times supporters include HBO, presenting Barry. Barry is a dark comedy about a depressed hitman. On his way to execute a hit on an aspiring actor, Barry follows his mark into an acting class and ends up finding and accepting community in a group of eager hopefuls within the LA theater scene. Emmy eligible for outstanding comedy series and all other categories. For LA Times Studios and The Real, I'm Mark Olson. Documentary filmmaker Morgan Neville won an Academy Award for 20 Feet from Stardom, a look at the lives of backup singers, and was a producer and director on the recent series Ugly Delicious, featuring the chef David Chang. Neville's new film, Won't You Be My Neighbor, takes a look at the life and work of Fred Rogers, best known for his television program, Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. With a mix of archival material and new interviews with Rogers' family and many people who knew and worked with him, the film creates an emotional portrait of a man who became a part of the lives of generations of children. I recently went to Neville's production offices in Los Angeles to talk about the film, along with the overriding theme of Neville's work in film and television, the idea that culture matters. You have become so prolific over the past few years. I mean, just in the time, kind of while you've been promoting Won't You Be My Neighbor, you made a film for Facebook, you have other projects that are coming out. I'm just finishing my my next film is pretty much done, so... Now, you want to know why? There's there's a reason why. Tell me. That as an independent filmmaker for 25 years, it's, you know, living the life of a hustler trying to get projects made. And for years, I spent at least 50% of my time trying to raise money to make films. When I won the Oscar, the best and biggest difference it made in my life is now I spend 6% of my time trying to raise money to make films and TV shows. That frees up a lot of time. I can be a lot more productive now because I don't have to spend all that time trying to get things made. That is a huge part of why all this stuff has been happening. And the other thing is just, I've been doing it for a long time. I have a bunch of people around me who I've worked with for years, editors and writers and producers. And it just makes it so much easier when you've got people you've worked with year in and year out who you have a shorthand with. So... It's been great. You know, it's it's amazing to be in that position as somebody who's been doing this for a long time. In fact, I will say this month is my 25th anniversary of starting to make films. Wow. I moved to L.A. 25 years ago this month to start making my first documentary, which was Shotgun Freeway Drives Through Lost L.A., which was both my first film, my de facto film school, and it did well enough that I never look back. It's all I did for for years. Do you feel like all the work that you do comes from essentially the same creative place? Like when you're making feature films, films for television, even the Facebook project, which mostly is being seen on YouTube, are they all satisfying sort of like the same creative needs? They're satisfying different needs. I think I generally have a direction I like to go in with things. I mean, I call myself for lack of a better term, a cultural documentarian, which I think I just invented so I could explain what it is I do, you know, because people use documentary in this very broad brush kind of way. But the fact is the difference between a political issue-oriented film or a Michael Moore type film or, um, you know, verite documentary, I mean, these are very different types of film. And the thing that has unified my films, I came to realize, is... I am 
obsessed with culture. <laughs> I love culture. I've done a lot of music films, and that in part was because I am obsessed with music, but also because I could get those financed. I became known as the music guy, so people came to me with really interesting projects. Really, you know, I've made films about art and language, design, food, movies, um, and I'm sure, and television, you know, and Mr. Rogers, you know, they're all different parts of culture. And what I keep circling around culture is that culture is kind of the great misunderstood part of, of our world. You know, I, I feel like culture is discounted in our world because there's no easy metric to understand what it means. It's not like economics or politics where there's a number, there's data. Like you can't, how do you express how different the world is because somebody like Mr. Rogers spoke to millions and millions of children over decades? It no doubt had a profound impact. And I've heard anecdotally scores of stories of individuals that have come up to me, but I can't tell you, you know, point at a number and say it made us, you know, 12% more empathetic, you know, like there's no way of doing it. And that's just one example. It's like, there's no way of defining culture other than to keep pointing out that it's essentially how we define ourselves and how we define other people. And it's really, to me, like water that connects all these other parts of our world. But to me, it's, even though it's fluid, it's incredibly powerful. And to me, it's the most interesting part. So I keep coming back to that. But now, especially within the world of documentaries, do you feel like there's still something that most people still approach documentaries with almost like an eat your vegetables attitude and that whether you do you ever feel like because you're not making sort of social issues social problem films I think a lot of people expect from documentaries like do you feel like your films for lack of a better way to put it aren't taken seriously enough I can't say that because a lot of people have taken me very seriously. <laughs> I just read an article this morning. Somebody wrote about Mr. Rogers being at the forefront of a new type of film called Nice Core. You know, so it's great, you know, when people take you seriously like that. You know, definitely when I started making documentaries, they were the spinach of filmmaking. You know, there was nothing particularly sexy about them. There were only maybe two outlets to even make documentaries. And I think a lot of things have changed. Documentary filmmaking's changed. The audience has discovered documentaries. The way to access documentaries has changed. People, given the option of watching a narrative or watching a documentary, will often choose a documentary. And there's this kind of heyday of creative filmmaking happening right now in nonfiction filmmaking. So I think that's great. You know, in terms of my, I feel like my own journey is really one from you know, I'm part journalist, part historian, part filmmaker. And I feel like in the beginning, I was more journalist, historian, slash filmmaker, and I'm more filmmaker, slash journalist, historian. So I love journalism. It was, I started as a journalist. It's my first love. But I was always a complete movie obsessive. And I came up under the sway of new journalism. You know, Tom Wolfe wrote this uh, put together this anthology of new journalism in the early 70s that was like my Bible that had all of my heroes and it was Joan Didion and, you know, Truman Capote and Norman Mailer's nonfiction pieces and Gay Talese and all these other amazing writers who were basically taking techniques of fiction, novel storytelling and applying them to nonfiction reporting. That's kind of what I'm doing now. I mean, I think it's what a lot of documentarians are doing now is taking tools of fiction filmmaking and putting them into nonfiction storytelling in movies. So I feel like I'm doing the same thing all along. 
I think the thing that has changed about me is, particularly I'm thinking about films I made about the Brill Building, about Hank Williams, some of these documentaries that I'm very proud of and I loved making. But there was a sense with those stories that I was caretaking of a history and I had a responsibility. On the Hank Williams documentary, for instance, everybody in that film, probably 30 people I interviewed, they all knew Hank personally. And he'd been dead for over 45 years at that point. So I wanted firsthand witnesses to help rescue the real Hank Williams from the incredible mythologizing that had happened around him ever since. And a lot of people will say to you on films like this, you need to get the history right. I'm telling you my story because, you know, we need to understand this. And I appreciate all that. But I feel like I've tried to understand that I have to be a tougher editor, that it's not my first job is to make a great film. And I feel like if there's a subtle shift in my filmmaking, it's probably been more willing to let go of some of the historical context and the the need to kind of feel like I'm checking my history boxes and more just concentrating on the film first. And it's a subtle change, but I think it's what I've done. And now is that part of the thing that keeps drawing you back to documentaries? In part, why not make a fiction film about Fred Rogers? What for you is sort of the advantage of making a documentary that tells his story? It's interesting. And, you know, I love the scripted world and it would be fun to work in that world. But the real world is so weird. You know, Fred Rogers is an incredibly weird guy. There's no way around it. And there's something about, and people have said this before, you know, that if you were to script something that had happened in a documentary, people would say, well, that would never happen. You can't do that. Because things happen in real life that are unbelievable, truly unbelievable every day. And that's what makes it so interesting. And I feel like the documentarian's job is largely to find a way to impose a narrative structure on the chaos of real life. And I feel like a good filmmaker's job is often to infuse chaos into the often trite and formulaic ways of telling scripted stories (laughs) to make it come alive in a way. But there's something about, you know, a character like Fred Rogers that, you know, and I know they're making a film with him and Tom Hanks is going to play him. And I think it could be really interesting. But what excites me is being able to just go down the alleys of how unique and weird everybody is, you know. It's just, it's always satisfying. And the other thing I like about documentaries is, I mean, just as a fan, you know, even a bad documentary, I'm going to learn something from. You know, I I get great ideas from bad documentaries all the time. Um, Or I learn something really valuable all the time. And I think that's great. I can't say that about every bad scripted film I watch. To me, one of the things that I found so sort of useful and illuminating in the documentary was just seeing the footage. I think if you, for example, the episode he did after the assassination of Robert Kennedy, I feel like if you dramatize that, it doesn't quite capture it. To really see it, to just see that footage, there's something about that I think you just can't recreate, you can't convey. And a a moment like that... How surprising is it for you in your research to sort of come across something like that, to see that for yourself? I mean, that was, that very episode was essential because before I'd even decided that I was really going to make the film, I wanted to know that there was enough 
dimension and tension and all these other things that I didn't yet know about Fred Rogers and about the story. And so I went to the Fred Rogers Center in Latrobe, Pennsylvania, where his archives are. And I had read about this Bobby Kennedy special, but it only aired one time in 1968 and had never been seen since. So the first thing I wanted to look at was that special. And they played it for me. It just blew my mind. Like after watching that episode, I had no doubt that I could make a film about Fred Rogers. I didn't know exactly where it was going to go or what it meant, but any of those doubts I had were gone. And there's something about that, the artifact of history that is so powerful that I don't know how you make it as interesting. You can make it dramatic and you can make it emotional, but there's something about the realness of those things that is, you know, irreplicable. And now I've, I've heard you talk in some other interviews about the ways in which you see the Fred Rogers film is sort of connected in some ways to your previous movie, Best of Enemies, that was about Gore Vidal and William F. Buckley. And in some ways, it still is so shocking. I think we're so used now to everything being kind of prepackaged and having a certain distance to it that the idea that like this was on TV, this was like the public discourse and people talked this way on television, it's still, it's surprising every time you see it. And are you still surprised that Fred Rogers put this stuff on TV? That like he was talking to people in such a direct and kind of emotional way? I'm not surprised that he did because to him, he talked to people that way whether there was a camera on him or not. You know, that was, his superpower was this direct emotional honesty and you see it when he's speaking in the Senate. You see it when he's talking to Tom Snyder on The Tomorrow Show. If you go online, you see him with Joan Rivers on The Tonight Show, and he does it again and again. He wields this superpower and melts hardened cynics around him. What I think was surprising is that he had a TV show and that it was successful. And I think it's only because of the uniquely organic way it happened. I think if he was born five years earlier or later, the show probably wouldn't have happened. And even by the early 80s, Fred was saying, if I came along now, I would never make it in television. You know, that that had all changed so much. So I think it was, you know, a synchronicity of the right person, the right message and the right time that he somehow managed to squeak in there and do this show, which is so unlike any other show. Because I grew up watching everything, you know, Sesame Street and Electric Company and Captain Kangaroo and all of that. And they're all so different. And I liked things about all those shows, for sure. But Fred's show was, you know, where those shows might be teaching you how to count, or Schoolhouse Rock teaching you civics, or, you know, grammar, or teaching you all of these things. Fred's teaching you how to be a person. I mean, that's a very different message. He's explaining, essentially, to two to six-year-olds, this is how you should behave, and this is how you should treat others. And these are, like, the most fundamental messages, which is why People keep telling me this is the most contemporary film I've ever made, even though he starred in television in the early 50s. And now that aspect of it, I mean, there has it's been interesting how much of the response to the movie has been people saying, we need this, I need this. And when you're making a film, especially given the sort of cultural elements of what you do, are you thinking about that sort of like big picture? Are you thinking about like the reception and the sort of the waters you're launching this boat into? I do think about it, but I will say it was a film I needed. <laughs> so it wasn't, you know, positioning it with an audience per se. It was really the first impulse for me to want to make the film 
was not about nostalgia. It was about getting Fred Rogers' voice into the cultural conversation today. And I'm not even a fan of nostalgia, particularly, because <laughs> I find it regressive, and it doesn't ask very much from the viewer. I could have made a much more nostalgic film. This isn't a particularly nostalgic film. It's a film about ideas. And the thing that got me excited about Fred in the first place was going back and revisiting his voice now as an adult and feeling like, where's this voice in our culture? I don't hear this kind of grown-up voice. I mean, that's what connects it so much to Best of Enemies, too. It was asking the same questions. Where are the grown-ups in the room? What happened to grown-ups in our culture? What happened to the idea that television could be a place to foster community rather than divide community? So I felt like those were things I really, really wanted to talk about. And the amazingly gratifying thing is that people are picking up on that in the film. Like that was completely intentional on our part. And that people are liking that. I think the other thing about that is I wasn't trying to tell anybody what to think. The film is essentially a series of questions. It's not answers. You know, what are you going to do? How do we, you know, what responsibility do we take? Is this naive or not? Is there room for this kind of dialogue in our culture today? There are all these questions that I want people discussing. I'm not here to tell you what to think. I'm here to empower you to come up with your own answer. That's really exciting. And also, a lot of documentarians, friends of mine, have had these discussions over years, but particularly recently, of who are we making films for? You know, are we making films for each other? Are we making films to preach to the converted? Are we making, you know, what's the intent of what we're doing? And I felt like I had an opportunity and a character who had no particular cultural positioning, who was so elemental in his message that I could make a film that hopefully all kinds of people would watch and draw their own conclusions from. But like Best of Enemies, people could at least agree upon some fundamental goods and good ideas. The great thing about that film and about this film, I believe, is that I screened Best of Enemies for very conservative groups and very liberal groups, and they both liked it. I've screened this film for very conservative groups and very liberal groups, and they both liked it. That is so difficult in this day and age. But those are the kinds of stories. If we can at least find common ground to agree, not about the politics of it, but about the culture of it and what the values, because generally I feel like we share values in common. And I don't want to come off as too naive, but you know, I feel like that if we can't, and I think Fred was concerned with coming off as too naive, but I don't think that talking about civility is you know, like talking about unicorns and rainbows, you know, it's like talking about oxygen. Like, how do we function? How do we nurture? How do we protect this social compact we have with each other rather than tearing each other down because it gets us votes and ratings? And now we're going to take a short break. L.A. Times supporters include HBO presenting Westworld. Live without limits in a world where every human appetite can be indulged. This dark odyssey follows the dawn of artificial consciousness and the evolution of sin. In this hit series, a group of android hosts deviate from their programmers' carefully planned scripts in a disturbing pattern of aberrant behavior. Chaos takes control in the second season of Westworld. Emmy eligible for outstanding drama series and all other categories. And we're back. 
and I think you've referred to it as radical kindness that Fred conveys, but at the same time, there's a purposefulness and a willfulness behind him. The footage of him in, at a Senate hearing is just incredible because he's kind, he's disarming, he's all the things that we think of Mr. Rogers as being, but there's a force and a purpose and it gets to an end in a way that I think you don't expect his tactics to achieve that result. No, you don't. And it's what he did. He never played somebody else's game. He made them come to him, which is an amazing power. And it showed his confidence in his own message. But it's something I think he just, he was so able to speak to these things. But then you see in the film, as he gets older, you see his real frustration. I mean, he's an incredibly willful person, but you see his frustration that people aren't paying attention, that people think it's just great to put anything in front of kids, to do anything, to throw away educational standards. Fred felt very strongly about a lot of our kind of educational standards and how misguided they were and driven more by politics and bureaucrats than by the needs of children. And those are some of the only few things he ever spoke out about, I guess you could say, politically in a public forum. But as he says, you see him, you know, this warrior for kindness, <laughs> like he's so willful and he's in real, honest, good kindness. You know, this idea of it's not Pollyanna-ish stuff, as he says, it's real kindness and what that means. And I think that idea that kindness or grace, as he often would describe it, is something that isn't quaint and naive. It's in fact essential. But now, I certainly did not know about his short-lived show that he made for adults. Why do you think that show failed? A couple of reasons, I think. And it's worth saying, the show, Old Friends and New Friends, that he did, is actually fascinating to watch. I think he did 24 or 26 episodes total. There's an episode with Milton Berle that's talking about the pain behind comedy that's very serious and heavy, and it's great. And he did an episode with Hoagie Carmichael and all these interesting people. Part of it is, I think, Fred's emotional directness, which worked so well with children because children are emotionally direct and very vulnerable and open in that way, and Fred was that way. Adults can't shift gears that quickly, particularly, you know, 40 years ago, to be that emotionally open and vulnerable on national television was not done. I think that was part of it. And I also feel like Fred hadn't yet mastered the ability to talk to the child inside the adult, which I think he became better at as time went on, and to use his tools to unlock the things that, that adults could empathize with in terms of these deep emotional issues. I mean, you see him later on, he became better at talking to adults. And like I said, I, I think it's a really interesting artifact of this certain time in his career, and I wonder... In a way, it's like, that's the show I, I want on television now. It's like Mr. Rogers talking to adults. And that's part of what this film is, is Mr. Rogers talking to adults. You know, from the reaction and how it struck me, it works. You know, adults are ready for this kind of message. And all the kinds of things that Fred Rogers was essentially doing are ideas like emotional intelligence and mindfulness. These things we talk about now in our culture that didn't even have names back then. But I think there's certainly an appetite, slow culture. You know, these other things that we talk about are things he was doing 50 years ago. A lot of people have talked about how much they cried during the movie. Did you design it in that way? Like, I found my, 
when I was watching the movie, I found it to be a really remarkable experience because I was so caught off guard by the moments when I became emotional, the things that sort of triggered me as I was watching it. Did you have some sense of what the peaks and valleys of that were going to be? They're different. Did you make a crime no, machine on purpose? No, no. I mean, I found it very emotional and it was very personal for me and very, it was emotional for me. I had no gauge on how other people would take it. And I will say, I have had so many people come up to me and say, you know what really got me? It was this scene. And then the next person will say, you know what really got me? It was this scene. I've had people mention 15 or 20 different scenes in the film. There's no way you can design that. I mean, it's people bring their own emotional state (laughs) to the film. And everybody has their own triggers. It's not like there's the one big scene that slays everybody. It's just where you connect in your own experience with what's happening in his story. And I feel like his kind of relentless search for one's emotional bullseye that Fred Rogers had, that he did with children and with people all the time, that if you're watching the film, eventually he's going to find it. <laughs> you know, that eventually, that's what I've come to realize, is eventually somewhere in there, something's going to connect with you or your hardened defenses are going to melt at some point. And for most people, it happens, you know, but just in different spots. And now you mentioned nostalgia earlier. Have you found that there's a difference in audience responses, whether it's generational as far as like younger people who maybe don't have a childhood relationship with the show or also people internationally that maybe have never seen the show. Like, do you, have you seen some difference in audience responses? Yes and no. So I've screened it for some international audiences, which has been interesting because Mr. Rogers never left North America. Canada and the U.S., he was very well known, a little bit of Mexico, but that's it. So if I ever meet people with an accent, I pretty much know that they don't know who Fred Rogers is. Though I have to stand corrected because a few different people I've said that to said, oh, when I moved to America, I learned English by watching Mr. Rogers. So I think a lot that happens a lot more than we let on. But what happens with an international audience is I think it takes them longer to figure out what the film is. You know, there's no instant nostalgia blast if you don't know who this guy is by hearing, you know, the music at the beginning or seeing him. So you're trying to figure out what it is. But I feel like by the second half of the film, an audience that has no familiarity with him is as absorbed as an audience that did, which is, honestly, I had no idea how that would play. And I'm still kind of perplexed at it. But essentially, it gets back to that same idea that it's really not about nostalgia or about biography. It's about these fundamental human ideas he's talking about, which are timeless. You know, I mean, they're the same things that Shakespeare talked about and the Bible talks about. I mean, that's the, you know, he was so elemental in his kind of humanist worldview that those things are never going to change. Now, in part because of sort of what we bring to documentaries as viewers, I know for myself, I kept waiting for the dark twist. Like you kept waiting for something to come out. And was it a surprise to you in making the movie? I don't know if you had that same feeling. Like the twist is that there's no twist. Basically, (laughs) yeah. And I didn't know, you know, 100%. I mean, I'd done a fair amount of homework and I'd talked to a lot of people in the beginning, just to say, I mean, it's the fundamental question everybody has. Like, is he for real? Is this guy for real? And it's interesting screening the film, for instance, for a British audience, as I've done a couple of times. 
you know, and their point of reference is Jimmy Savile, who, who was like a children's TV host who turned out to be a very nasty guy and had a lot of skeletons in his closet. So there's like this cultural expectation that a lot of people have in this day and age that you're waiting for the other shoe to drop and where's the big twist? And when you come to the point where you realize, oh, Fred's not only the same as Mr. Rogers, he's actually more impressive than the TV character, that it starts to make you think about yourself and how we as a culture have come to view people that we lionize. And I think that's interesting. You know, I think making the film, I mean, even it happened the first time I went to Pittsburgh and I got into a taxi and he said, what are you doing? I said, I'm here because I've been thinking about making a film about Mr. Rogers. He said, really? And he turned around and he pointed at me and he said, don't screw this up. He actually, since it's a podcast, I could say, don't fuck this up. <laughs> so there's a sense from a lot of people of like, don't, I can't afford to lose another hero or it was so kind of sacrosanct to my life. Like, don't tell me that. But the reality is he was, like I said, not only who he seemed, but even a more interesting, better version of who he seemed. And so the film essentially, as a filmmaker, the challenge is, how do you make a film about a character who did a show that on the surface never changed and who, as a person on the surface, never changed? You know, that was my question in the beginning. Like, where's the dramatic tension? And you, first, of course, you realize when you look closely, he did change and the show did change. But more than anything, the world changed. And really, the story as we structured it is, you know, he builds his show very quickly and very early in his life. So we thought of it as um, Fred, he builds his utopia, he defends his utopia. And at the end, the question is, what is utopia? <laughs> so it's really him versus the world. I was just talking about it in terms of the idea of radicalism or radical because the root of the word radical is, is radix, it's Latin. It means root. Literally, the word radical means root. And a radical change is a root change. But it means that something radical is actually a root of something. We come to define it almost in the opposite. But what I think is interesting about Fred is that the world moved around him. He was talking about core human values, but the world moved away from those to the point where his attempts to reestablish these fundamental humanist values seems radical because he's trying to take us back to the root of what it was all about. But we have, as a culture have drifted so far from these essential roots that I think we've become radical. And now, do you find making the films that you do, whether it's Fred Rogers or Muddy Waters or Orson Welles, who I know you're making a film about now, does your relationship to these people change like i i don't want to ask like do you ruin these people for yourself but like do you gain something or do you ever lose something in making these films i always gain something and i usually lose something too <laughs> i mean i know particularly af after having made films about certain musicians i have to kind of take like a 10-year break <laughs> before i can revisit their music or something you just go so down the rabbit hole that you can't hear it as a fan anymore you know you can't stop using your brain rather than your heart or whatever else to react to the art, essentially. So there's that process. But I feel like that's not a huge price to pay for having the privilege 
of going down the rabbit hole, which is something I love doing, you know, and being able to kind of jump into a character or a story and make the film you want to make, you know, because all of these films, in a way, I've come to realize after years and years of doing this, are, of course, reflections of me, too. They're all, you know, you could have made 10 different films about Fred Rogers. I made this one because I felt like it was the film I needed to make for myself. And in a way, even in a documentary, which people tend to not think of as particularly reflective of the filmmaker, I feel like they're absolutely reflective of the filmmaker. People really don't talk about it much, but I think it's completely true. So there's that part of it that I think is something I get out of it. Morgan L., thank you so much for taking time to talk today. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. And for the LA Times Studios and The Real, I'm Mark Olson. Thanks for listening.